Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Westcott Loudon, who is a, I call him a contemporary mystic. If you want to know more about him, look at his YouTube channel, uh, which is Enlighten Channel. That's what it's called. Have a look at him. I got into him um, because I saw a video where he was analysing the DMT experience that another YouTuber had posted in which he used Jungian symbolism and and archetypal paradigms to analyze the experiences that this fellow was having on hallucinogens i thought i like this it's interesting to me so i thought have him on for a chat he's not like someone that you've you know like next week we've got graham hancock on who we know from the world of uh podcasts but uh, westcott you've probably not heard of him yet but he's interesting and mystical and mysterious and intense and it's a good conversation about religion hallucinogens that kind of stuff, the sort of thing that you're probably into. Um, thanks for all your comments on Shepherd Fairy. We'll get into that in a second. I want you to sign up for our YouTube channel and to our newsletter. Listen, I need to be able to communicate with you directly. Go to russellbrand.com and sign up to the newsletter and you will receive information from me that I didn't even say out loud because there are so many ventures and ideas and schemes are coming that I want to send them to you directly. So go to russellbrand.com and sign up for that. Also sign up for the YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips and that kind of stuff. All right. Oh, and look at uh, Rebirth on Netflix if you want to. Let me know what you think about this podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Rusty Rockets. Use the hashtag under the skin. And on Instagram, I'm just Russell Brand now. Cool. Like it, like it. Let's have a listen to some of the things you said about Shepherd Fairy. What a wonderful podcast that was. That man can talk and charm. Billy Idol. Yeah, Billy Idol said... Obey talks about the creative process and uses Linda Ramone. Hashtag Ramones as an example. That's my Billy Idol impression. Yeah, yeah, I like Billy Idol. I like Billy Idol, and I think that that's a good impression. And uh, no, I can see other people's faces. It's not gone over well as an impression. Other comments include this one from Beastung. It's bloody great, you two. I've long been a fan of Shepard's ability to use art and design to cut straight to the gut. Fascinating discussion on democracy, socialism, and taking individual responsibility. Nice work. Kat Derry said... I always had the biggest crush on Shepard, and that still remains the case. Hashtag secret crush, hashtag Shepherd Fairy, hashtag art, hashtag all the humanities. Infini goes, that was great. I could really identify with both of what you're saying. I'm a visual artist, and yes, the flow has to be authentic to produce something original, but I find that I'm unconsciously influenced by other environment, other artists or the environment too. Sometimes it's hard to paint what's in my mind because the painting skill lets me down, but I really like Shepard Ferry's comment about being a good editor, and if a mistake is made, then nothing's lost. It's harder if you're more pure and honest with yourself and your, and your art, but it's great to listen to somebody else. Shepard Ferry, you were great. Russell Brand, you were crap. No, not really. Just kidding you. Like to tease it. You like to tease everyone else all the time. Oh, God, I can give it out, but I can't take it. You have a gorgeous ego because you so like to be fair and giving. Well, that's nice. Thank you very much for that. Infinify. Nice. Nice compliments. Mvritsin Music says, Why am I more creative at night, especially late at night? Well, the obvious answer, Mvritsin, is that you're an absolute nocturnal pervert. You're a danger to yourself and others. Otherwise, it might just be, what is it, Arcadian rhythm? Is that what you call it? Arcadian rhythm? It's just your rhythm. It's just the rhythm of the night, as they say. Um, 
Thank you. Right, let's have a listen to Westcott now. Let's listen to what he's got to say. Listen to this man relating these curious tales of... I will say in advance, do not take drugs. I'll say that. And uh, unless you want to and it's not bad for you. You know, me, I don't take drugs. And be extremely cautious if you're thinking of delving into the world of psychedelia because people, some people, like me, for example, are quite fragile. So I will offer you that. Now, please enjoy this podcast. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Westcott, thanks for coming on Under the Skin. Were you like, I know you because of my obscure trawling of YouTube. For uh, listeners that may be uninitiated, will you tell them about your peculiar, intriguing background and what you do <laughs> presently? Well, I'm the host of Enlightened Channel. I, uh, I started studying religion a number of years ago. I, I really got into it when I was a teenager, mostly. And uh, that was in large part because, you know, I was more of a scientifically minded individual. I really liked science and uh, I was really geared that way. And I planned on maybe becoming an astrophysicist. And then my, my grandmother, she told me a story where she had had this, this dream where she was taken to the Garden of Eden and she described all these experiences. She said she spoke to God and and uh, met Jesus. And I, I could tell she wasn't bluffing me. You know, I could tell she was being sincere. And so for me, that really kind of, I don't know, it was tantalizing. And I thought, well, I need to understand this. I need to know what's going on. And so starting with Christianity, I, I really went from there. And now I've studied just about every religion. And uh, what really what really broke through for me was, were some of the experiences that I had later on that really... Um, opened my eyes to a lot of these things and it uh, made me made me motivated to share some of the things that I'd learned so you got like you was deep into uh meditation primarily from a buddhist perspective before you got involved with plant medicine is mm. that right yeah no it was uh well it was it was psychedelics was actually one of the last things that I really got interested in. And it was because of a slow progression that I sort of went through where, you know, first, first off, I thought, I think most like uh, most Christians, you know, thinking in very materialistic ways, you know, a literal heaven and all of this. And uh, my interest in science made quick work of that. You know, I, <laughs> I really started to lose faith the more I uh, looked into those things. And I spent a little bit of time as an atheist, but then, you know, I was introduced to Carl Jung and uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, and there's this strong sense in those religions of uh, spirituality having to do with the mind, you know, it's the nature of mind. And that was, a, that was a new way of looking at it, because as an atheist, I kind of comforted myself by saying, oh, all those experiences that I had, all those feelings was all in my head, you know, and that's a very easy way to sort of dismiss a lot of these things right to just say oh yeah it's all in your head but uh you know with psychology and buddhism i recognize that just because something is all in your head doesn't mean it isn't real you know that something being all in your head can still be a reality unto itself and so uh 
that kind of took me, made me look at psychedelics a little more seriously because, again, you know, psychedelics is all in your head, right? It's just a, yeah, it's just a psychological experience, but it's it's very real to the person who experiences it. What did you What did you do? What was your first foray into psychedelics? Well, when I was younger, I I played around with uh, with salvia a little bit, but I mean that doesn't really produce anything meaningful. Uh, a good friend of mine he suggested that I try LSD, and I was a little intimidated because he had ended up actually in the hospital after doing LSD. He became. He's not the ideal advocate. <laughs> Recently hospitalized. <laughs> He, uh, I, I should tell you the story. It's, it's pretty good, actually. He, he calls me up one day and he says, uh, I got to come over, man. I'm coming over to your house right now. And I was with another friend and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll head home. And I come to the house and he's covered in bandages and he comes stumbling in and I'm like, what happened to you? And he goes, I dropped acid last night. He says, I asked him to tell me the story and he said, because he was starting to look at it in a spiritual way. He wanted to achieve, you know, a kind of enlightenment on it, on LSD. And uh, at one point he became utterly convinced that he was like a messiah figure and that he had to descend into hell and that he had to sacrifice himself for the apocalypse and all this. And uh, he became so convinced of it that he, he started to cut himself with a razor blade and then jumped off the top of a building and uh, tore all of his clothes off and ran around the streets. And then uh, somebody pulled over and said, you know, do you need help? Are you all right? And he says, you've got to take me to hell. <laughs> Smashes the windows. You know, his his story, I like to share it because it, it goes to show how, how powerful and, and even dangerous a lot of these things can be. You know, the, it's, uh, you know, psychedelics. I often like to compare it to, uh, you know, gasoline. You know, if, if uh, you put gas into a motor, it can do a lot that's really meaningful and useful. But, you know, if you just spray it everywhere, it can make a hell of a mess too. My early experiences with LSD were similarly unguided. So, you know, like I was just a kid taking it on my own. Nothing so dramatic as your friend's experience there. But certainly... it. What like my interest is, and even when your, even your friends wacky, dangerous, definitely not an advert for hallucinogens. Experience <laughs> of self harm, yeah. suicidal <laughs> thoughts, believing in a very conventional idea of an underworld and an afterlife. You know those. Um, it's still like still that experience contains like archetypal information. Yeah, yeah and that's that's what was really interesting because he. <laughs> He went to the hospital and the lady, she says, uh, you know, what do you want? And he goes, pure fucking gasoline, he says to the nurse. And the nurse, she goes, uh, she says, well, if that's true, you better tell me because we're going to have to pump your stomach. And <laughs> so he said, no, no, I'm just on acid. And then shortly after that, they said, uh, you know, you should probably talk to a psychiatrist. And he says, no, no. He says, I'm going to see my friend Wes. That's that's what he says. I want Wes will handle my yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. psychiatric <laughs> affairs from here on in. Can he also do the stitches? No. <laughs> I need you for that. Um, <clears throat> the reason I wanted to talk to you 
It's because I watched one of your videos where you were analysing somebody else's DMT trip. I can't remember which one in particular, but we can find the link. And it was a it had quite a lot of hits, I guess, because it came up on my feed when I was looking, as I do a lot of Terence McKenna exploring uh, psychedelics. Obviously, from you know, I've, I've not taken psychedelics for a long, long time. I'm drug free for sixteen and a half years. My curiosity around psychedel- psychedelics is spiritual, particularly as I suppose as a, a, a spiritual person. And I engage in conversation, if not argument, with atheists. And I feel that, like, you know, Terence McKenna's approach is comparable to David Lynch's approach when it comes to meditation. Do the meditation and then come back to me with your, you know, your experience of the rational measurable reality you know like uh, like Terence McKenna always says about like if you take the you know the prerequisite five grams you will experience it doesn't require reverence it doesn't require ritual it doesn't require that you approach the altar uh, you know deferentially it will smash your individualized consciousness open and you will experience other types of reality that will really challenge the materialist view that what we see with our senses what we experience as an individual is a a small portion of available realities now of course the sort of the repost of most rationalist atheists i would imagine is well no what you're doing is inducing a kind of mental breakdown a sort of a psychedelic experience is a kind of breakdown but what what for me challenges that idea is the fact that there's a corollary archetype frequently recurring symbolism that aligns with motifs that are found in religion motifs that are found in folklore and ideas that have a deep truthful resonance to them that seem to be referring to something beyond what ought occur when an individual introduces chemicals into their brain well and i think i think that's one of the big challenges with psychedelics because i know you know, I've, I've worked with people or had conversations with people who, who are self-professed atheists, and I've challenged them saying, you know, if you have an experience, you're going to contact something. But in many instances, uh, they often don't. And so I know Terrence McKenna's, you know, approach of saying, you know, if you just take the, the substance, you will have the experience. I, I don't know. I, th- I think that there does have to be a certain level of receptiveness or or a genuine desire to experience these things. I think if somebody comes into a psychedelic experience already convinced in their mind that it isn't real, then their whole relationship with the experience has changed. You know, I think that you need not only a certain degree of openness, but even a certain desire to actually pursue those things. And and I think that's a challenge. I think that's, uh, you know, I think of another good friend of mine. He he used LSD a lot recreationally and never had a religious experience. And, uh, you know, he'd text me sometimes. He'd say, oh, man, I just did five tabs and I'm going riding my bike. You know, <laughs> he was just like that. And then one day out of the blue, he says, uh, man, I'm a Christian. And I'm, what do you mean? And he says, I met Jesus. He says, I met Jesus on acid and I'm a Christian. You know, he was fully convinced after that. And so, you know, I think that that's the, you know, I, on my channel, I often compare psychedelics to a kind of spiritual bungee jumping, you know, where, where sometimes it's very imprecise. Sometimes you can, you can come away with deep and meaningful. I mean, honestly, my experience with LSD, I've only done LSD once and hands down was the most meaningful experience of my life. But uh, that was because I was actively pursuing it and bringing lucid dreaming into it, Tibetan meditation techniques. 
So I think in many ways the psychedelics best serve as a fuel, as a as a you know a power or a channeling energy that can really ramp up what's already there in terms of a religious practice. But I think if you have no religious practice at all, you may come away, you know, as uh, one friend described it, he said he did mushrooms and saw humping kangaroos. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really, you know, and that's the unconscious mind, right? And Carl Jung, he talks about that where, you know, there's the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. And to break through into the collective unconscious, you first got to work your way through a little bit of that personal stuff. So some of these goofier things that you'll hear on psychedelics, I think is mostly the personal unconscious. That's the, the shallower waters. And then if you break past that, and, and oftentimes religion can help with that, breaking through that, uh, you get into those deeper waters and then phew, all of a sudden, bing, you know. Can you conceive of neurologically what a personal, the distinction might be between a personal unconscious and a collective unconscious? Can you imagine that being mapped onto a neurological model? Can you imagine that, oh, these synapses simply don't fire until you've no, had these kind of experiences? It's, and you know, it's funny, actually, I was just watching a, a lecture last night about the uh, neurological constituents of consciousness. And it's, it's profoundly difficult, you know, in neurology, I, I, I'm most, you know, when we look at neurology, I think the most interesting things actually come out of anesthesia, you know, general anesthesia, like when people go into surgery and things like this, it, it really gives us some insight into the nature of consciousness. But uh, based on what I've studied, and also what I've experienced, I would say I'm a firm dualist in the sense that, you know, the, the brain is really, in, in my view, at least, uh, little more than a tool of the, of the mind itself. Mind is something completely other. That's a very Buddhist idea as well. Oh, it's, unpack that a little bit. I don't know nothing about that. So in, uh, in philosophy, the philosophy of, of reality, there's really been always two ways of looking at the world, what they call monism and dualism. So monism describes one reality, and most of the time that's typified as materialism. So science is very monas. You know, there's only one physical world and that's it. Uh, biblical thinking also tends to be have a great accent on monism. That was actually where it largely seemed to emerge from, oddly enough. And uh, religions tend to, more so towards dualism, which separates matter and mind. So the first uh, major philosopher to tackle that was Plato, actually. And it was Plato and Aristotle who suggested that matter is one thing and mind is a completely separate thing. And that was where the Catholic Church picked it up they integrated it into the notion of an immortal soul and things of this kind. Uh, the Eastern religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, they even go one step further by arguing that there's no matter at all, that really mind is the only thing that truly exists. So well, is that what Maya is? The illusion, yeah, yeah. the material world is, they are saying, literally an illusion, literally not there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of a spectrum, you know, where you can you can go with science, which is materialistic, that says everything is physical, but that leaves a lot of missing information. Like what is, you know, I always like to challenge atheists. I say, well, then what physically is a dream made out of? You know, if you see a lake in a dream, you know, are there H2O molecules in there? You know, it, se it kind of seems ridiculous. Or, you know, how much does consciousness weigh, right? You can ask these kinds of questions that reveal the limitations of materialism. It only goes so far. Uh, the other extreme is idealism, which is like Buddhism, which says everything is mind. There's no such thing as a physical reality. It's pure illusion. And dualism sits in between by suggesting that 
there's a little bit of both going on there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a longstanding debate between philosophies and religions, you know, but in many ways, I sometimes wonder uh, if maybe it isn't just sort of an arbitrary label that we put on a lot of these things, you know, if, if anything, I would say I'm a dualist leaning towards idealism, actually. I think that uh, mind is the fundamental basis of reality. Certainly as individuals, our reality is fundamentally taking place in our own Mm -hmm. consciousness. And I can think of medical or at least uh, anatomical ways that that's evident, just the way that the optical function operates in creating, in breaking down photons into image inverting that image in consciousness just stuff that i'm literally not at all an expert in but (laughs) that i have a fleeting understanding of i suppose what um interests me about inducing whether through meditation breathing or psychedelics or some other practice states of mind and experiences that seem if not transcendent of then detached from our our typical understanding of the material world. What, why I suppose this has become so important to me is the order of things is underwritten by the notion that, it, that this is truth. This is the way things are. And it, to bring about a new order, to change the way that the world is run, or my world is run, or your world is run, or the world at large, if there can ever be such a thing, it seems to me a requirement that we introduced new data and new understanding. And I feel we're, I feel that we're experiencing the limitations of our current models, whether that's democracy, capitalism, materialism. (laughs) Do you feel that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I think, uh, because I happen to be passionate about science. I really, I, uh, I love science, but I do feel that, uh, science has hampered itself. It's sort of set a barrier there in terms of the progress that we can make, you know, as a species even, uh, by this rigid materialistic thinking. You know, if you look back, actually, the first person to realize that stars were distant suns was not a proper scientist. It was Giordano Bruno who received the revelation in a dream. Albert Einstein came up with a theory of relativity based on a dream. You know, many major scientific achievements throughout history have been accomplished with the help of the unconscious mind. Yes, these ideas are manifesting through the consciousness of individuals in ways that are difficult to explain. You know, like particularly these, uh, what do I want to say, these paradigm-changing realizations. You're not realizing that the the stars are distant suns with something you're doing with test tubes or measurement or even <laughs> telescopes as yet prior to their invention. You know, like of course it's a difficult, isn't it? Because it becomes quite polarized the argument between science and religion. And I am my tendency emotionally is towards the unknown and the invisible. But I am a pragmatic person, and for me, spirituality is a highly pragmatic tool. How do we cope? knowing that we're going to die, that everyone we love is going to die, that that there is pain, that there is suffering. It's a, it's a pragmatic tool. I don't mean that in the sense of the sort of rather dumb sense of I require a palliative. It's simply that I am recognising that this is a, one frequency of reality. This is one possible reality. And like that, to continue to iterate its not even supremacy, its 
totality through through different through more and more thorough measurements of a tiny tiny space does cannot preclude the possibility of other dimensions other means because all, everything is instrumentally limited because of the, the nature of our own senses and the nature of our own consciousness well and i i love the way you point that out because it's you know that's something i've noticed about science one of the things about science is that science generally focuses on dissecting right breaking everything down into indivisible little parts and pieces and uh there's this this kind of a i would say almost a, a logical aggression to science that that must ha hang on to and grasp everything it's got to be solid firm something you can know right whereas with religion it's uh it's inherently unknowable and by definition i think that religion is not functioning through a dissecting of reality so much as an openness to the totality of reality it's a very different mental approach to to understanding the world and religion also relies primarily on visions dreams altered states of consciousness which themselves rely on symbols and metaphors and all of this so then you try to you know equate that with science it's a completely different thing you know science is there to dissect define you know really nail things down but as the buddha says attachment is the cause of all suffering you know so there's a, a totally different accent there of saying letting go where science is very grasping you know it's a very grasping tendency have you found in your own experiences with psychedelics meditation or the study of religion peculiar corollaries with emergent truths from scientific disciplines for example when you hear sometimes i heard on like i watched neil degrassi tyson documentary uh, cosmos probably and he mentioned your man there that bruno dude and like sort of there was a wonderful animated sequence where they talked about his realization and how he advanced things and how he became a heretic you know but he's like he said all of this is love of god all of this is love of god and neil degrassi tyson at the end goes but of course that guy never knew nothing it was just yeah. a guess <laughs> just, just, like just sort of dismissed it well, hold on a minute he's communicating there are other ways of receiving information other than material measurement this yeah. is like you know that you're demonstrating you're using it in this bloody documentary <laughs> and, the, and the other thing is yeah. that um you know we talked at the beginning about the potential for limitless multiverses and what you know what infinity and then eternity kind of starts to look at even when we're like when we talk about the known universe how far we can pull out and like the sort of baffling array of 400 million known galaxies i mean just too much to comprehend it's literal limit if we can experience limitless on a physical plane with our under with our uh, with our ability to measure for me a refusal to acknowledge that that could be that could occur in different ways that are not so easy to measure is the same as when people insisted that the world was flat or that the atom was the smallest particle like it's just because you can't like you know like i've heard um scientists say if you can't measure it then it isn't there but what but what about when we couldn't measure stuff we couldn't well you know i i love to well, i always love to respond to that and i always like to say well if if you take that logic then really you don't exist right because we can't measure i mean we can measure the effects of consciousness but we can't measure consciousness itself and uh there are a profound number of things which cannot be measured and my favorite example of which is uh qualia itself Qualia is a word that describes our immediate sensory experiences. So 
scientifically, right? We can look and we can say, okay, this bowl of blueberries here, you know, it, uh, it has a certain chemical makeup. It has a certain weight, everything else. We can measure all that. The, the photons bouncing off of there hit my eyes, which send an electrical signal to the back of my brain and my brain works a way to do that. And, uh, that's all great and good, but then at what point does that information translate into my experience of seeing it and, and the palpable nature of it, right? You can't measure that. It's unmeasurable because it exists in consciousness itself. And so this philosophy of saying, if you can't measure it, it does not exist, excludes the entirety of your conscious experience. You don't exist. Dreams don't exist and qualia don't exist which means nothing exists <laughs> it's almost as if like uh, i feel like uh, sometimes i feel like science still bears a grievance from the from the early burning of its geniuses yeah <laughs> you know, like, like you know 100%. Like, yeah. like it's like clearly we need both these things. Clearly we need a relationship with what is known and what is measurable, but we need to honor the unknowable. Like why why do we have to become dogmatic and oppositional? Well, I think, you know, I heard uh it was actually on the the show you did with um oh, I can't remember his name now. I want to say Sheldrake or something. Yeah, like that. Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah, yeah. He mentioned that. He talked about how there was a political agenda behind science, right? Where the Enlightenment was trying to undermine the authority of the Catholic Church so that any compromise towards religiosity or towards even dualism was a step towards that kind of thinking. And because they were so actively trying to undermine the aristocracy of, of that world, uh, they just couldn't allow themselves to entertain those ideas because it had a political, you know, dimension to it as well. And how can it still not? I would be curious to to learn what percentage of scientific study is sponsored by or underwritten by capitalist endeavor. And many people will say without capitalism, you, you won't have the entrepreneurship or the desire to continue to proceed in a new frontiers of discovery. But that doesn't seem true of human beings. And it, like for me, that it appears that there, whilst the you know science is the USP of science is a lack of bias, clarity, evidence, proof. There's continual demonstration of the corruption in even the way that uh what do i want to say um what's that word peer-led review is sort of biased and corrupt that you know no one's exploring non-profitable medicines <laughs> no one's like all of it like is you know there's a term foucault uses of epistemes like eras of time great epochs of time that are determined and uh, determined and defined by what is unknown at that time like the, and of course it's you know unconscious unknown so we it can only happen retrospectively but for me speculatively it feels that we don't see how fundamentalist and influential our economic ideology is that it infiltrates and dominates all fields of endeavor that nothing is going to be discovered that is a challenge to, to the, the hierarchies quo, yeah yeah it's 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 100 percent. you know it's it's like the saying goes right uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely right so i think it's unfortunate that I mean, no matter what we do, I mean, I'm a, a practicing Roman Catholic and, and there's no denying that the Catholic Church succumbed to tremendous levels of corruption, right? Because of the, the money and the power and the influence, which says nothing about the ideology itself, says nothing about 
the religion itself. It says more about the individuals who occupy those roles. So unfortunately, I mean, as, as history is an indicator, you know, there's, there's a kind of progression where, you know, a certain ideology will, you know, help in explaining the world, bring great benefit, great good. But then as it gains more authority and more power, you end up with a lot of people in there who are not really interested in the good of man, but are more interested in lining their pockets, right? Of course, and I agree with you that these are not problems that are particular to any any one ideology, but they seem to be institutional problems that occur in the name of national sovereignty, in the name of commerce, in the name of religion. When mankind builds institution, this seems to be a tendency. However, though, I would like to ask, how do you reconcile your own Roman Catholicism with the evident and much publicized corruption and deception and problems of like what do you do with that i always uh i always joke and say if it was if it was up to the popes and bishops if that was the reason for joining the church i never would have joined the church <laughs> what do you what are you into then well I, I you know the i always like to uh to look at the example that christ set in one of the gospels he you know, Jesus was a was a committed and orthodox Jew. He belonged to the school of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were terribly corrupt. And he said to his disciples, he says, you have to listen to the Pharisees because they sit on the throne of Moses. But he says, don't do what they do because, you know, they're, they're not practicing what they preach. And if you look at the history of Catholicism, I always say the true history of Catholicism is not lived out in the popes, priests, and bishops. And I think most Catholics would agree with me on that. Uh, authentic Catholicism is in the lives of the saints. I mean, that's really where we're supposed to look for our example and for our spiritual tutelage. Who are the best ones? The best saints? Or your favorites? Oh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. Go on, why will she do? Well, she she wrote a book. I, I still have yet to read it, but she uh, she wrote a book where she said the soul is like a castle and you make your way through the different palaces and she says there's seven palaces just like seven chakras cool right? and she says you make your way through those palaces and when you get to the center you find christ and she says that's divinization that's your spiritual awakening so uh i'm really interested right now uh, i'm especially interested in eastern orthodox christianity you know i when i when I kind of moved away from Buddhism a little bit, I was disappointed because I thought, well, there's a lot here that I want to take with me. And I thought Christianity wouldn't be able to, to offer that. But then I discovered that there are these traditions called hesychasm over in, in Greece, where the monks have practiced meditation for, for centuries. And uh, they their ambition is to achieve the condition of what's called theosis, which is Christ-like realization. And they do this by experiences of what they call the Tabor light. So they say there's this, you know, you, you do these breathing exercises and you go deeper and deeper into yourself. And then you, you have this visionary experience of a light and you realize the Christ-like nature within yourself. I mean, it is remarkably similar to Buddhism. So much so, in fact, that the Eastern Orthodox go to great lengths to try and distinguish themselves. They say, <laughs> Why are these esoteric practices so clandestine when it would seem that that's essential to the message of Christianity. Well, and I think I think that's, you know, what we mentioned earlier sums it up, right? Because if you look at the, I mean, Christianity was like that in the beginning. You had the desert fathers who were going into the wilderness, you know, they were, they were seeking an experience of God, seeking to realize Christ within themselves. But then as more time went on, the uh, the accent went away 
from this commitment to the spiritual experience and it went towards politics and money and influence and all of this, right? And so in a lot of ways, even to this day, many Catholics are very suspicious of these practices and they say, oh, it's too oriental, it's too mystical, right? Mysticism in many ways, uh, you know, is, is something that a lot of people have suspicions about in Christianity, which is terribly ironic because mysticism, as far as I can tell, is the observation arm of religion. I mean, if you take mysticism out of religion, you're just based with a, or left with an empty ideology. You know, it's... That's the whole point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to have a mystical experience, to, to transcend the limitations of the senses, to transcend the animal experience, the carnal experience of having a body and how limiting that can be. I suppose the tendency with all uh, ideologies is to think, well, geez, Matt, oh, it's a really cool bird of prey set on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're such superstitious old wackos. You see a falcon out the window, everything has to stop. But I suppose like you know, you have this realisation, you have this mystical experience, and you think, well, how can we bring this peace, this truth to as many people as possible so they can have it and that they may live their lives in accordance with this truth, this truth that seems higher, more peaceful, a comfort in truth, a truth that in fact might facilitate a society where people are more inclined to be kind and to share and to one lo one an love one another and live as brothers and sisters and to overlook our differences and accept our commonalities. You know, and so you think, well, we're going to have to somehow fight the tide of these materialistic <laughs> social structures that are dominating and turning us all into consumers or whatever it was at any particular time but in combating these external structures somehow the religious the orthodoxy comes to resemble them comes somehow to resemble them and is less and less able to provide the access to the mystical experience and the findings of that mystical experience. Now, me, the only thing I'm qualified to talk about with any degree of authority, and this will astonish people because they hear me talking with authority and all manner of shit that I've got <laughs> no right talking about, is my own experiences of the 12 steps. And what that, uh, in a sense, doesn't mimic because it is authentic. It facilitates a kind of realisation, like, you know, well, step one, we're fucked, life's unmanageable, powerless over addiction. Step two, it's possible that things could change, it could be better. The introduction of help if you're prepared to have a relationship with a power greater than yourself. Step three, hand life and will over to the care of God as you understand God. For me, that's a for me, that's an acknowledgement that my consciousness is previously as currently experienced might not be the limitation of my consciousness as it could be experienced even if that just means getting educated in a very secular rationalist material way if you teach me how to surf i know how to surf now i didn't i, I didn't i didn't know that before you know and that and you know if i know how to meditate if i have shamanic experience if i learn how to speak another language i am slowly slowly developing the totality of who i am becoming a different person and, and and also it's a willingness to accept advice from outside of yourself and to and to start to cultivate an experience with a, a higher sense of yourself both communally and individually well that uh, that 12-step program was actually inspired by carl young eh? you, did you know yes yeah. i've researched it somewhat and i plan to research it more and it seems that the sort of the fundamental influence is a first century christianity a group called the uh, oxford group who had this sort of principles of restitution and awareness and service um with the philosophy and writing of William James, many Christian type writers such as 
Emmett Fox, uh, you know, like that. The, they were um, C.S. Lewis seems to, have, you know, been quite impactful, although he would have been contemporaneous, I imagine. And um, and as you say, Jung. And it's from Jung that you get the kind. What I like, like Jung, in fact, was an instigator in the, a predecessor of these twelve-step fellowships uh, was sent to him by his family. The guy, you know, got six months away from alcohol, then drank on the way home, went back to Jung, and, he's, and like Jung sort of said, this guy will not be able to not drink and take drugs unless he has a kind of spiritual awakening. He goes, I've only seen this happen seldom, you know, this seldom happens, but a spiritual awakening, then the ongoing support of a community of like-minded people. Like they, and and it, these are that, those are sort of, in a sense, two p- integral pillars to the 12-step experience to be, induce a spiritual awakening. The mystical component is further expressed and I would say iterated through the seventh step and the eleventh step. The seventh one is, you know, humbly ask God to remove your shortcomings. And the eleventh step is sought through prayer and meditation to increase conscious contact with God. I'm One of the things that we shouldn't dance around is, I wonder how... What the hell is that? <laughs> Such a like, weird, we're uh, just so you know, we're recording this in Southern California. It's a hot, hot day. We're having to leave the windows open because we're in some sweltering little outhouse. And like there's like a, what looked like a very young bird of prey outside the window. And like, you know, both of us being uh, barely sane believers in constant <laughs> metaphor and symbol will frantically research which particular type it is and what kind of totemic messages it's bringing to us. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, how you know, like there's two communities that uh, that one would have to acknowledge need to be brought together for any meaningful revolution to occur. One, the uh, rejected blue-collar working class uh, people that seem to me to be turning on mass to retrograde ideas of nationalism. And two, the uh, intelligentsia mired in uh, materialism, atheism, intellectualism, and a kind of an understandable cynicism about uh, religious orthodoxy and particularly uh, reluctant to embrace anything that's remotely woo-woo. How do you start to frame these ideas these experiences these you know mystical experiences in a way that becomes acceptable in uh, that framework well i think in a lot of ways you know the the power structures that be you know the, the it's always been that way you know if you go through history you'll always find you know powers at the top who try to enforce an ideology on everyone below them and you know there's money and politics and corruption involved so I guess, you know, as far as politics and, and power are concerned, I guess you might say I'm a bit of a pessimist. I really think that, uh, you know, you tear it all down, rebuild it, and the same thing comes up again. I think that the more effective thing is for people as individuals to say to themselves, I want the most meaningful experience of life for me. And, you know, if each individual prioritizes their own inner spiritual life and takes time to to really embrace that then it slowly begins to spread it can it can really spread and uh, influence the society at large but i really think that in a lot of ways you know most people today i think in some sense are already ready for that because you know the the materialism that we're you know being sold on is is really shown now to be 
you know, a little bit wanting, right? I think most, <laughs> most people, you know, they go to their job every day, they buy that brand new car, they get all the nice things they want, but they're still not happy. They're still dissatisfied. And you say, okay, well, what is it that I need in order to be happy in my life? And in many respects, religion is there to accomplish precisely that, to give people a meaningful experience of life. But what we've got to do is we've got to get inside of those religions and shift them away from all of this silliness, you know, like things like creationism and, you know, proving that the earth is 7,000 years old. And, you know, the, the religions have been bogged down, especially here in the West, you know, so terribly by this literalism. And this has infected, uh, you know, religions all around the world. I mean, radical Islam is the most literal form of Islam. and uh, Literalism is not a good approach to mystical, symbolic, metaphorical philosophy. Well, it chokes the life right out of it. And it, it takes something which is meant to be an inner experience of the mind and transforms it into an outward object. And I really believe that's really what the Old Testament was talking about when it talks about idolatry, right? The, the abolition of idols. Uh, because if you look at it, there are many images in the Old Testament. You have the Ark of the Covenant, you have paintings of cherubim, you know, you have big statues of oxen. So it's clear that Yahweh didn't have an issue with statues and images. So you say, well, then what's the meaning on this prohibition of idolatry? I think that it was an ancient way of saying, do not take those things which are within yourself and try to turn it into a physical object. You know, I, I think uh, of the Garden of Eden. You know, there are people today traveling through the Middle East trying to figure out where the Garden of Eden is. Well, you know, my grandmother was there in a dream. <laughs> it's it's not a yeah, it's not it's not a piece of real estate. It's it's something within yourself, and it represents a different level of the mind. And if you look at the Old Testament, you know, the in Numbers chapters twelve verse six, it says, you know, I the Lord speak to prophets in visions. I communicate in dreams. Right. So this is this experience of the inner life that uh, all of these religions are supposed to be teaching, but instead they get bogged down in this in this materialism of trying to treat everything like it's a fact, you know. Well, it seems to me that that is as a result of the permeability of these ideas and the influence of the dominant cultural idea of materialism. Because if you know God is communicate through visions and dreams it's very difficult to tax that it's very mm. difficult to build infrastructure around that <laughs> exactly like some guy is just going to have access to the garden of eden while yeah. strolling along a dusty <laughs> path <laughs> difficult to turn that into dollars well that's it reminds me of something father richard Rohr said father richard Rohr is by the way is somebody i would really recommend people people who are interested in the mystical side of christianity he's kind of a current voice that really advocates for that but, you know, he talks about this where, you know, the, the, the old Jewish authorities, you know, had this habit of always looking to the prophets, always looking to those who had come before. And then Jesus comes along and just says, well, I've got it from God that it's this way. <laughs> I've gone direct to the source. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember even when I was a kid, I, I remember getting so confused when, uh, you know, I would hear people arguing about religion all the time. And I would think to myself, well, okay, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present always and everywhere, why don't we just ask him? I mean, what were the prophets doing that we can't do all of a sudden? And there's this really strange, and I think it's it's a result of the pedestalizing of the Bible, taking the Bible, putting it on a pedestal, 
which uh, is in itself a really strange thing when you break down the history of it. I don't know how many people know this, but the Bible was put together by the Catholic Church. I mean, it was uh, Pope Athanasius and uh, St. Jerome who who sat down and said, okay, we're going to pick which books are in, which books are out. Uh, if you read the, the historian of the early church, Eusebius, it's remarkable how casual he is in critiquing the Bible. Like he, he writes in his history and says, well... The letter of 1 Peter, everyone agrees on. We're all 100% confident that 1 Peter was written by Peter. But 2 Peter, eh, not so much. You know, and this is a part of the Bible, you know. So Christians have really, they've lost that, where, the, where this sense of, you know, the Bible was originally a very, you know, a wise book, a counseling book, but it hadn't been pedestalized yet. And yet, in Western history, that slowly happened. We put it up on a pedestal. And now you have all these people that are worshiping it, really, in many respects, like an idol. You know, they, they don't want an experience of God. What they want instead is to just obsess with this book. You have the same thing in Islam, you know, same exact kind of ideology. Whereas uh, Eastern religions are starting to come in and shamanism, Aboriginal shamanism and these sorts of things, which don't have that same kind of a pedestalized text, and they're resurging in popularity. And I don't think it's because Christianity is inferior or that it doesn't have the capacity to do this. I, in many respects, I see Christianity and Islam as a victim of their own political, you know, orientation, right? It's uh, it's taking over Buddhism. In, and in a sense, though, uh, I spoke last week to Reza Aslan, and in a way to, uh, like, you know, Islam, uh, I don't know if Islam in particular, but you can see how that, that these are political ideologies. Like, uh, there's an economic component. I know, like, in Christianity, there's the whole render unto Caesar what is Caesar's deal. But, like, if we're talking about, as you have said, omnipresent, omnipotent forces, then we, why would we not use that to... Um, to uh, in the to create systems. Why would we extract that from the creation of systems? Why the separation of church and state? And obviously, as you know, like we can sort of answer that there was a necessity for the creation of nation for all manner of projects to be undertaken. But to, you know, now, and this is I don't apply this to any particular denomination or any particular understanding of faith that if you extract spirituality morality kindness love from the way that we organize our systems then you will get well the kind of systems that we have punishing unequal unconscious unfair systems yeah well and i think you know in the west we have this particular tendency towards institutionalizing our religions due to a really strange coincidence of history. Because if you look at the Jewish Bible, uh, you know, in the early texts, there was this sense of a very literal Jewish nation, right? Where, you know, mm. there's, it's the emergence of the Jewish people in the state of Israel, God promising them the promised land. And it's this very slow and gradual process throughout the biblical text that transfigures this, this literal kingdom into something much more transcendent. And this is one of the things I love about reading the Gospels, right? Because when Christ came and said, oh, I'm the Messiah, right? What the Jews heard is, I'm the king of a very political power that's going to go to war with the Romans and conquer the Romans and establish this nation, right? But what Christ keeps telling them are all of these things which are clearly not political messages. You know, like, for instance, he says, love your enemies. Well, how are you supposed to defeat the Romans, 
by loving them, right? Or when he's challenged by the Pharisees, they say, you know, when will the kingdom come? And he says, the kingdom doesn't come by saying, here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And even when he talks to Pilate, he says, uh, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. So it's clear that, that by the time you get to the time of Jesus, there has been some kind of significant transformation in thinking. But in spite of that, the history of Christianity, as well as Islam and Judaism, always wants to lean back to that Old Testament picture of establishing the literal kingdom on earth, right? The literal kingdom of God. So, you know, there's, there's this kind of tension between those who think of the kingdom of God as being much more mystical, much more inward, you know, a, a, a spiritual level of realization, and those who see it as a very political movement. And uh, the, the history of Western civilization, I think, is slowly and gradually undermining that political way of looking at it, where the mystical way of looking at it is, is beginning to show itself as being the correct one, you know. My concern with the with the preeminence of the mystical is that, in a, a sense, it uh, permits uh, existing power structures to yeah. continue untrammeled. Well, this is just something that people do in the privacy of their own own home: sit down quietly with a candle, think about <laughs> being all nice, and then just crack on with your job. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like crack no, on with true. participating in this system and allowing your life force to be co-opted as a little unit of energy to keep this monster rolling along. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I don't think that really you could probably separate those completely. And I, you know, maybe I've been a little guilty of that. That's funny you point that out because yeah, now I'm thinking about it. You're right. You know, you can't you can't entirely go mystical because really the mystical life is in many respects dependent upon a society which even allows for those things. You know, if everyone became communist, let's say, and they legalized religion, well. That'd be the end of the mystical life, right? <laughs> Although it simply can't be repressed, isn't it? Because it, yeah. like, there are certain components that, you know, they sort of, uh, like even within Christianity, the emergence of the saints, as you said, like is the sort of the most more important than any ecclesiastical structure is, is a suggestion that there is a, a requirement for a degree of pantheonism, for a degree of like God's expression throughout individuals, throughout nature, not just one centralized or the, you know, the Trinity, but, you know, the, these various expressions expressions of spirituality in in mortals and and of course the incarnation of god through christ is almost the the, the, the fundamental aspect but one thing i'm curious about is how with the in my my assumption being the rather unwieldy potentially terrifying experiences uh, that occur, and irrational experiences that uh, that you have had through uh plants and uh, hallucinogens have you been able to uh, realign with the existing theology of Christianity to the point of being Christian? Well, it has been a challenge. I mean, my my experience on LSD, like I had a full-fledged near-death experience. I went up into a vast open space. There was a, a being of light that was there, told me I wasn't allowed to be there, and I said, you won't stop me from reaching nirvana. <laughs> you know, I went through all of that. Went through the old being of light. Yeah. <laughs> get out of my way. You're yeah. a made of light. I can get through that. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And it was horrific. I mean, hands down, it was the worst experience of my life, but it was also the best experience of my life. And the thing is that in that experience, I mean, I saw 
first and foremost, I, I used Buddhist ideas to navigate it. It was... Ah, right. You had access to that in there. Yeah. It was... Uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was really uh, my primary tool because what I did is I, I started working with lucid dreams and then I had a lucid dream experience that was so real. I asked myself, even inside of the dream, I was looking at a tile on the floor and I says... You know, I could see the individual grains of granite in the tile. And I says, if a dream can be this real, how would I know the difference? You know, and, and before that, I had been assaulted with a, a baseball bat only a few months prior. So, you know, I, I woke up from the dream and I thought for a fleeting moment, I thought, you know, what if I died in that attack? And this is all a dream. Well, a few days later, I dropped acid, which was probably a bad idea in Damn, retrospect. Mate, terrible timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, I became utterly convinced that I was dead, and I just started to navigate the experience as if it was what the Buddhists call the bardo. So my, my friend was the wrathful deity who was undermining my attachments, and I said to him at one point, I'm going to destroy the whole universe, and I was meditating, you know, I wanted to escape, and I took a deep breath, I plunged my mind deep as I could go. And that was when I came out and I opened this big space opened up. And uh, I think the being that I met was actually Amitabha in, in retrospect, the Buddha Amitabha. Who's that? He's uh, the Buddha of limitless light within Buddhism, a red Buddha, because the being was red. His whole body was made of red. Do light. you think then, even though we're sort of encouraging people to look at these texts metaphorically, that there is on some level a literal... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's And that was the thing I was really pursuing because I had studied Young and I had studied Campbell. I had really gone into these things and I could appreciate religions metaphorically and mystically and psychologically. But I realized that didn't really represent much comfort in the face of death. Right? You know, it's, the poetry isn't going to make me feel better Don't about worry, dying. Don't worry, we've got a poem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need a defibrillator. Yeah. So I, I wanted to know if there was something literal and, and concrete about these things. And I, and I found, I hesitate to use that word concrete because, again, that leans towards the material. But it was very literal in the sense that there, you know, it was a real space. It was a real place. And uh, the thing that really actually brought me back to Christianity was at the very height of that experience, I saw the white light that people describe. And when I felt the presence of it, I said, Jesus, what are you doing here? Because as a Christian, I had learned to recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that light was that presence. Good. I'd like a bit of that. A lot of my mates who have done... Um plant medicine have said to me that uh, similar to what you said about the sort of the atheistic experience and the limitations that uh, an, uh, a, a devout atheist might bring to a psychedelic experience um my friend said he was on here simon Amstel. he said that like that he's jewish so like like, uh, like he said like the christian person met jesus a hindu person was like chatting to Ganesh you know and he said like he's like Jewish so he, he had like this sort of very benevolent psychiatrist <laughs> God comes to each person in their own way right? <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so in a sense that's further I'm curious about that I'm curious like that in a sense like what we're saying about literalism and the problems of a literal 
Uh, well, it's not an interpretation, is it? If it's literal, sort of a literal enactment of, of, of scriptural text leads to the stuff that we discussed earlier. And yet there may be an actual physical, if subtle, reality to some of the... In fact, for there to be a universal language at all in a Jungian sense, for these archetypes to be just that, somehow universal and recognisable, they must be in their own way physical real in their own way real yeah well and that's you know there was another experience and this is something i would encourage people to do actually on your own good because a lot of the stuff you've said shouldn't be encouraged (laughs) guy slashing at himself you sounds awful throw yourself off buildings yeah not good yeah (laughs) there uh no when i first got into these things you know i i was really um compelled by a a recording of Carl Jung where he talked about precognitive dreams. And he says, you know, he he talked about it as if it were just a self-evident fact. He says, precognitive dreams are a reality. And it's, you know, he says anyone who denies it is... What does that mean, actually, please? A precognitive dream is a dream about the future. Now, when I first heard that... Precogs, like that film, uh, Minority Report, precogs, they dream the future and Tom Cruise uses it to catch crooks. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's... Uh, he says precognitive dreams are a reality. Then oh, yeah. Where does he go with that? Well, I, I looked at that and I thought, that's a bold statement. And this was at the time that I was still an atheist and a strict materialist. And uh, I decided to start recording my dreams in an effort to observe one of these. I thought, you know, this is great because this, this represents an experiment I can do on my own. I don't have to rely, you know, I don't have to build the LHC or fly to the moon to have this experience. This is something in my own mind. So I was recording my dreams and nothing was really happening. And then I thought, you know, from all the stuff that I had read from Jung, I thought, what if I have to invoke the help of the self-archetype, this organizing nucleus of the psyche? That was uh, Carl Jung spoke of the self-archetype as being really the psychological mirror of God, you might say. It's really Jungian language for talking about God. And so I thought maybe I have to invoke that power in order to have this experience. And that for me was very difficult because I was an atheist, right? And I'm saying to myself, well, I don't really want to. So I can't say evoking God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> against the core tenets. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I thought to myself, you know what, to hell with it. I'm more interested in what's real than my chosen ideology. So I started to pray again. And uh, I just asked for a precognitive dream. And then I had a dream one night where I was standing in a in a hardware store and there were these people across from me and they were all wearing orange smocks and they were having a conversation among themselves and i thought a few things in the dream and then i woke up and that was the end of it and so i scribbled it down and i thought well that's really interesting i'm, I'm thinking maybe this is it and i was looking for a job at the time and so i thought well maybe this is telling me where i can find some work so i applied at a, a hardware store called totem where they wear orange smocks well they didn't call me back. Nothing ever happened. And I forgot all about the dream and said to hell with it. I was like, ah, you know, bullocks, right? And then uh, a few months later, I got hired at Home Depot. And then I was I was working at Home Depot and I'm standing there in the plumbing aisle one day and I look over and I see these four people standing there and this tremendous feeling of deja vu came over me. I'm like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And then I started thinking thoughts which were appropriate to the dream. Like thinking thoughts like, why am I here? What, you know, what is all of this? And the, the only way I can describe it is it's like a moment where in which consciousness overlaps. The, the, the consciousness you had while you were dreaming 
merges with the consciousness you're having while you're awake. And it's a, it's a merged experience. And I've talked to a few other people that have, that have had this experience as well. And, uh, for me, it was proof positive because it, there was no interpretation involved. I wanted to avoid that. I didn't want to have a precognitive dream where, uh, you know, let's say I, I don't know, I dream about somebody pouring a bucket of water on my head and it happens to be raining outside. Right. That's not too loose. Yeah. Too loose. Yeah. <laughs> you want I, actual orange schmucks. Yeah. Actual home <laughs> depot. I'm going to start believing in precognitive dreams. Yeah. I was like, it's gotta be exact. And it was, it well, was things, absolute. As I'm sure you, you know, obviously you'll be aware, like John Ronson came on here once and John Ronson has done a lot of exploration into the sort of wacky fringes of the world. And of course, like one of his books and, and made in a film, Men Who Stare at Goats, sort of documents how like the CIA and then the US military have taken seriously like the this realm of uh, precognitive experience te- telepathy and their experimentation around lsd is pretty known and that well re- a re- recent brilliant episode of rogan where he spoke to our man uh, bob lazar who i first heard when i was like 16 i can remember hearing sort of cassettes of him talking bob lazar bob exler timothy good all the ufo people so just like even these things that are consigned to the dustbin of the lunatics you know <laughs> like it's like that they are also being seriously studied by the most powerful uh, social institutions of our time well and the, and the thing that i find really amusing about all of that is is at least in my experience one of the reasons why you know these political authorities can't arrest control of those sort of things is because it ultimately is under the control of this transcendent reality that there is an intelligence out there that dictates, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, is under the Hindu Upanishads where it says, uh, there is a spirit who is awake in our sleep and creates the wonder of dreams. He is Brahman, the spirit of light, who in truth is called the immortal. All the worlds rest on that spirit and beyond him no one can go. So it's a sense that God is ultimately what's responsible for, for organizing that inner dreaming life. So to try and you know, manipulate that inner world for the purpose of fossil fuel acquisition. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're going to come up against a brick wall where no dice. (laughs) I was thinking today, you know, in our life, we experience so often that order rests on chaos, that chaos is continually surging oceanically upwards and reclaiming the archipelagos of order that we reside so temporarily upon. And yet your quote about Brahman there suggests that even the apparent chaos has a deeper order in it, that we are only able to observe and interpret such localized patterns that what seems like chaos to us will have a pulse in it, an observable pulse, perhaps. Yeah. And, it, and it's something, you know, Carl Jung pointed that out where he says, you know, in order to really appreciate the intelligence of the unconscious, it takes time. And, you know, this is something I know that there's a lot of talk these days about psychedelics. And I think, you know, there, we should be putting more priority on dreams because, you know, it's, dreams are a psychedelic trip we all enjoy every night you know yeah. it's it's free you one know of, yeah one of my, it's free and <laughs> and involuntary yeah. <laughs> yeah one of my friends said like you know we're all talking about sort of psychedelics without sort of acknowledging that every night every single one of us lays down goes yeah. unconscious and enters into this mythic landscape <laughs> that while you're in it is as real as this reality how do we accommodate that you know how do we not 
understand like, oh well no that's back to the consensual reality of jobs and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know that's the sort of a clear demonstration that there are different frequencies of reality that are accessible that apparently have a, to some degree a common language and themes and ideas well and that was the big that was the biggest realization that i came up with after my lsd kind of near-death experiences i i remember when i when i came back into my body i felt genuinely that i was vishnu that i was this cosmic dreamer that my whole life really was a dream and you know i had this experience where uh, I felt as if Shiva was there with me, you know, the Hindu trinity Shiva. And he says to me, you know, this is the little game we play that I, you dream a universe and then I awaken you from it always, you know. I it's, like uh, that. Yeah. I like the sort of uncanny and eerie terror. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a fucking raven. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Mike, he'll appreciate that. He's a practicing Asatru with uh, Odin. He... Asatru, what's that, like a Nordic thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually got some wild stories about ravens. Uh, he started practicing Asatru, and uh, he says he went to sleep one night, and he found himself in a dream at his parents' old church. And he went into the church, and there was a pastor up there, and he was preaching about how all religions are connected, that they're all one. And then they started to pass out the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, and his brother said to him, does your stupid bird want one? And he goes, what do you mean, my stupid bird? And he looks over and there's a raven sitting on the pew with him. And so he, he gives the bird the Eucharist and it receives it. And then he steps outside the church and there's this thunderstorm above the church. And he goes, Thor, is that you? And the thunder crashes in response. And then he, he looks over at the bird or he sees a, a tree filled with ravens. And he says, Odin, is that you? And all the crows start to caw in the tree. The creepiest part, though, is that he woke up and the tree outside of his bedroom was filled with ravens all cawing all at once. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Be careful, thee, that leave this comfortable world of the known, <laughs> that venture off, who knows what may oh. come. I've been learning about tricksters, Westcott. I've been learning about... There are, there's a book called, do you know it? The Trickster Makes This World by a man called Lewis Hyde, who we should get on because you put him on a list with that other person, Richard Raw, for people that will drag into this sphere. Um, uh, and uh, he, like in his book, Trickster Makes the World, he acknowledges and explores the archetype of the trickster, um, the raven occurring, uh, like as you've just mentioned in them sagas, but also as the in a lot of Native American mythology, as one of the agents that can travel between the realms, the realm of the gods and the realm of mankind, often like Prometheus or Hermes, stealing boons, stealing cattle, stealing fire. This idea that there are, and I suppose this is what the Rishis or the Sufis or the mystics are doing, transcending the shaman to transcending to new realms, accessing uh, the inaccessible and spreading it among well, the community. I, I see you in many respects, even as a trickster, you as well as Joe Rogan, you know, and I, I've talked about this in some of my videos where the comedian in many respects is taking over for what used to be the mystic. And, you know, if you look at, I mean, even the news that we watch today, we spend more, we get more of our news from people like Trevor, Trevor Noah than we do, you know, CNN anymore. And it's because, you know, I think there is a spiritual level to humor. And this is something that the Native Americans really understood. And when Westerners approach their spirituality, they're usually offended. You know, it's uh, it's something they have a really difficult time with. I, I recently read 
the stories about Nappy, the trickster up in, in Alberta, where I'm from. And, uh, you know, some of the things he does. You're what, like, what is he around now? Nappy? What is Nappy? Oh, he's he's the old man, is what the natives call him. So they say that in the beginning, creator son created the world, and then he sent his disciple, old man Nappy, to teach humanity. But instead of teaching humanity, he just goes around and causes a whole pile of trouble. He gets, you know gets into these ridiculous situations and many of the stories are downright offensive i mean he rapes people and then murders them and like just horrific stuff but the stories always end with a kind of moral lesson where nappy ends up in a terrible situation as a consequence of his immorality so it's a kind of it's a kind of moral lesson in reverse instead of saying thou shalt do this it's more of a don't follow this example you know and uh I think in many ways, Western civilization is rediscovering the trickster. I mean, Yahweh is a trickster in the Tower of Babel. Yeah. No one needs that flood, for example. Yeah, exactly. Tricky swine. And what about like, uh, no offense, Lord. And and, and like, like, yes, the reintroduction of trickster and the ambivalence of trickster, the fool that also falls, that gets fooled, you know, like it's like he occupies either he's transgresses rules. This is necessary. Some have said that the in the attempt to purify faith, it loses its necessary complexity, you know, and I would argue beyond dualism. And I feel that what you know the figure of christ like uh, this is something i've just read the figure of christ becomes so rarefied so i uh, what's that word you said from pedestal oh pedestalized 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 that is inaccessible to us now and there there was a sort of i think it was an artist called serrano about 20 years ago did a, a a piece or a series of pieces called uh, like piss christ and blood christ where like sort of a uh, mexican like or sort of you know like latin looking sort of plasticky crucifixes were inserted in like a jar of urine or a jar of sort of blood painted water he was catholic though lapsed catholic but like a christian still and it was it was publicly funded to some degree and a local the local senator like there was outcry and like you know we've got to ban this and we shouldn't you know but but the author Lewis Hyde there is saying he was attempting to revivify the God that has now become so abstracted that it can't interact with human life. He talked to us well about the Robert Mapplethorpe case where, you know, where he was tried for obscenities, lots of sort of acts of homosexuality intimately photographed alongside images of celebrities and flowers and stuff like that. The sheriff's department went in and sort of like refilmed all these photographs. It was a big court case. And this Lewis Hyde points out that this was t- taking place at the time of the AIDS epidemic, where it was necessary that these, like these, you know, sort of these maligned and marginalised practices, such as homosexuality, was regarded then, or intravenous drug use, as it was regarded then, needed to be explored and brought to the forefront. And like, in a sense, even something as terrible as AIDS, along with like the sort of artistic movement around it, is carrying this information away from the margins into the centre. Has to be incorporated into the mainstream. Has to be a the dominant culture has to concede, has to recognise what goes on in the margins. The function of the trickster, therefore, as it goes on, is to ensure that the gods don't become uh, sterile. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny. I've, I've been meditating on the trickster quite a bit over the last year. And uh, I realise, you know, there is, a, there is a significant need for that image within religion and mythology because 
ultimately what the trickster reveals, I think, is our most immediate experience of God. And I can, you know, I can attest to this in my own life. There have been moments in my life where the reality of God has been so abundantly clear to me that it was just undeniable. And, you know, I've received, I've prayed about things and received very specific answers and dreams. And then there will be other times, you know, that, uh, uh, what was it the other day? I, I prayed for a little bit of wisdom, I think, in reconciling Christianity and Buddhism. And instead, I had a dream about having sex. <laughs> you know? So, you, you, you know, you're frustrated. You're like, you want the deity to follow, you know, the logical uh, pattern of the ego, the ego's way of functioning, right? But God in his transcendent nature is is not something that we can grasp or cling to. And uh, I think that this trickster quality within God has really been suppressed in Christianity and Islam and Judaism because uh, people ultimately want to align this with a political power. And you don't really want to typify the king of the state as being a fool. More in, you know, similar thing with the universe. You don't want to say, well, the king of the universe is kind of a fool, right? <laughs> that doesn't work well with that mythic structure. But if you look at all the great religions, I mean, the mystics, you know, whether it's the, the Swamis of India or the Tibetan yogis or the, you know, the, the desert fathers of Christianity, quite often they're a little twitched, you know. There's, <laughs> there's a thing, you know, in India they call divine madness where yogis will go a little bit, you know, off the deep end. And that's ultimately due to the fact, I love the way Joseph Campbell puts it. He says, uh, the mystic is swimming in the waters where a psychotic would drown, you know. So if a schizophrenic, you know, you take them, for example, they're drowning in the waters where a mystic would swim. So by all accounts, the mystic looks like a madman. I mean, John the Baptist is a perfect example, you know, eating locusts and wild honey, screaming in the desert about baptism, you know. Come have a bath, otherwise you'll burn in hell. <laughs> yeah, there's something wrong with this guy. You're right? going to end up with a blanket wrapped around you, mate. <laughs> And yet, you know, these are the people that we see within religious authority. I mean, another great example is Ezekiel, who was challenged by Yahweh to cook his food on feces and to lay on one side for a span of an entire year, covering himself in ashes. And Ezekiel asks Yahweh in the vision, he says, oh, dear God, can I just please uh, use cow excrement instead of human excrement to, to cook my food? And the Bible says, God says, yes, that's okay. You can Oh, yeah, no, I was pushing it a bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, I'm a reasonable deity. You just cat will settle on cow dung. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, these these religious experiences go outside the norm, and they touch <laughs> on places where in which the forces of nature take over. It's not about the ego's, you know, systematic system of control. Uh, you know, another thing Joseph Campbell pointed out is. He says, you can always tell where the ego has been because it's all circles and squares. You know, even we look around this room, right? The windows are squares, you know, the microphones are circles, you know, everything is a circle or a square. You can always tell where the ego has been because it does that, you know. And uh, nature, on the other hand, you go out here into these hills, you know, you walk around, you won't find any squares, you know, you won't find any of those concepts. I like that. I like that. Geometry. Hmm. All right, man. That's been a really bloody good chat. It got cooler as time went on, huh? We started off real hot. We calmed yeah. right down. Yeah. Birds of prey gathered around us as we communicated. Odin came for a visit. Yeah. He flew by. Whoever that squawking nut was over there. And uh, let's go check ourselves immediately into a sanitarium. <laughs> for the safety yeah, of humankind and society. <laughs> Westcott, thank you. Oh, tell us a bit about your channel so where people can find it and oh, check yeah. out your stuff. 
yeah if uh if people want to hear more of my work uh visit www.com or www.youtube.com slash people know that youtube's got a ww yeah i guess yeah it's youtube (laughs) it's on my business card i just was typing youtube (laughs) and nothing's come up what is this youtube who are these beatles Yeah, just look up Enlightened Channel and that'll, Enlighten that'll bring Channel. me up. Yeah. I'm also uh, I'm coming out with a book here pretty soon as well. Go the, on. the Way of the Dream, which is an autobiography that uh, that I'm hoping to have published here by the end of this year. So mm, You're doing real well. And plus you've got that lovely little baby that I saw when I was doing yeah. a show in Calgary. I liked that baby. And that's before I knew it was your baby because you was with your wife. I was looking at you from back because you were in an audience in a show and I was wandering around the aisles. Such a small baby, your son. What's your son's name again? Josiah. Josiah. I see that little boy there. He's been so peaceful. You know, like, sometimes you feel a baby's going to be a pain in the ass in a crowd. But Josiah knew he would be cool, and he was. Yeah, Yeah, we were a little worried. I told my wife, I said, if he starts to freak out, just quietly. (laughs) Extract the boy. Yeah. (laughs) But he was brilliant. Yeah. Thanks, man. I look forward to reading your book, and I'll be checking out your videos more. Definitely. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Westcott Loudon. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me, Russell Brand. Now that's all I am. I've got rid of the word true in case it was problematic. Or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, go back and listen to some previous episodes. Megan Jane Crabb, John Ronson, and look forward to Graham Hancock. That's who we're going to be having on here next. He'll be talking about his new book. He'll be talking about ancient Egypt. What I like about Graham Hancock is he's got a... Uh, a really open and curious worldview. I've known him for a long while. Some of you will have heard him on Rogan. Check him out on there. But he's also done some amazing stuff. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's he's had to deal with a lot of flack in his life, is my sense. But I, I really like him. I once met him in a yurt in Utah with all sorts of characters. What a peculiar world it is. Anyway, uh, check out my Netflix special, Get Mentors or Recovery, if you want it. And, uh, you know, please tell other people about Under the Skin on Luminary. Lots of love. Bye-bye.